Hi, this is Father Sean Kilcauley, the Family Life Office Director for the Diocese of Lincoln and Theological Advisor for IntegrityRestored.com. In this podcast, you'll hear the first 90 minutes of an Education for Love seminar given in Holdridge, Nebraska on January 23rd, 2016. The title of this talk is Parenting for Purity of Heart. Thanks, Becky. All right, I'm going to start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this space and ask you to send your Holy Spirit upon us to bind us to our Lord Jesus Christ, that every thought, word, and work of ours may begin with you and through you be happily completed. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Thanks for being here this morning. Um, as Becky said, my name is Father Sean Kilcauley, and I'm the Family Life Office Director for the Diocese of Lincoln, which is, means I'm in charge of family life ministry for everything under the Platte River in the state of Nebraska. Um, so it's great to be out here in Holdridge. In the past, our office tended to just kind of hang out in Lincoln. And when I got hired, a lot of my friends would come up to me and say, you know, you really need to remember the diocese is more than the city of Lincoln. Um, and so I've made an effort to be out and about, and I've done a couple of events in North Platte and down in McCook, and I think I saw some of you here that I've seen there. Um, but I want to ta- start by telling you a little bit about myself and um, my family, because today our focus is going to be a lot on our families. So my family starts with my dad who was born in Ireland, in this little town on the west coast of Ireland called Enniscrown. When he was 19 years old, he fell in love with a woman and got married. And they had three children. My sister Donna was raised by her Italian grandmother in Ireland. And now she's married to an Italian who runs four Irish pubs in Rome. Which is awesome when you're (laughs) studying in Rome. Um... My sister Jacqueline grew up with her mom, and uh, now she lives in Pensacola, Florida. My brother Mark was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, because when my dad was 22, he moved to the United States and started off in Tulsa. So when Mark was about two years old, um, my dad left the family. They got divorced. He kind of traveled around the United States. He lived in Memphis for a while. He lived in New Orleans When he was in New Orleans, he met some people who were moving to Michigan to work in the automobile factories there. So he went with them. My mother grew up in Michigan. Uh, When she was 16 years old, she fell in love with a boy and got married. Had two sons, my brothers James and John. And when John was about two years old, they got divorced. So dad made it to Michigan, met my mom. Yes. They got married. I was born... And then two weeks shy of my second birthday, my mother died of cervical cancer. So then dad married a third time to my stepmom. They had three, two daughters and a son, uh, my sisters, Sarah, Katie, and my brother, Kevin. And, uh, and then when I was a sophomore in college, they also got divorced. Right? So that's how I became the family life office director. And I say that as a joke, but it really is like the way that God formed me for the work that I'm doing right now. And it's the way that God formed me to be a priest. 
You know, sometimes when I'm out giving talks and people see me and they think, oh, you're a priest, you must have grown up in this great Catholic family and came out of the womb singing Alleluia. Um, not really, we were just kind of normal Catholic family. Um, we went to Mass every Sunday. Um, we kind of jumped around different churches a lot when I was young. But I did start to pray from a young age. And, uh, and I started to pray Psalm 139 before I knew it existed, right? which says, Lord, I praise you for the wonder of my being. I praise you for I'm wonderfully made. Because I would often reflect on how God had to bring my dad across an ocean through all these circumstances in order to finally meet my mom so that I could be born before she died. And reflecting on that, I had to come to the conclusion that God has a plan for my life. And so I started to ask him, what is your plan for my life? From the time I was quite young. I started thinking about being a priest when I was about seven, um, mostly because I was wanting to meet this person that gave birth to me. You know, I wanted to know who my mother was. And so I would lie in bed at night, I remember, and think about this. And I would think, okay, my mom's in heaven, and I really want to meet my mom. So that means I have to get to heaven. So I guess I'll become a priest, because all priests go to heaven. <laughs> right? That's the logic of a seven-year-old. As I got older, I was really involved with youth ministry when I was in high school, and it was there that I felt our Lord calling me um, to the priesthood. But when I'd, I would ask questions about it, none of the doors really opened right away because there was more work that our Lord wanted to do in my life. And so after high school, I ended up going to the United States Military Academy at West Point, um, mostly because it was free. And, uh, and I was smart enough and involved enough in school activities to get accepted. So I went there in 1992, graduated in 1996 with a degree in Middle East Foreign Area Studies, um, like Arabic language, Middle East politics, Middle East geography. And uh, branched infantry, went to Fort Benning, Georgia, learned how to jump out of planes, went through Army Ranger School, um, went to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, had like the top three jobs you need to be a career infantryman. Um, so my career was going great, but my heart was kind of broken. Because I was running away from God a lot at that time in my life. I felt sort of trapped. Like, I think God wants me to be a priest, but I'm stuck in my military career for another three, five years. I better just run away from God so I don't sort of have that nagging in my life. But the nagging that came into my life was looking at myself in the mirror and not recognizing the person that I was looking at. And so I ended up going on this really long drive down to see my brother Mark in Florida. And on my way back, I remember very distinctly saying, Jesus, what do you want me to do with my life? And him saying in return, I want you to be a priest, stupid. And so I went to the church that I attended, and I prayed, and I said, Lord, if you want me to be a priest, you have to open the doors now, because I can't keep living this way, and if you want me to do this, I need to be able to do it. So I'm going to ask one more time, and if those doors don't open, I'm done asking. So the next day, 
my chaplain happened to be walking by my office, and I stopped him, and I said, Chaplain, do you know any way I could get out of the army early in order to become a priest? And he said, oh, yeah, the priest recruiter is going to be here on Friday. Just happened to be that week. So I met with him, and then he gave me all the paperwork I needed to get out of the army. He was like, oh, I've helped three West Pointers in the last three years get out. Here you go. And then I was like, crap. <laughs> now I have to do this. So it took a little while, and um, eventually I met a priest who became my spiritual director, and he was very close with some priests in Lincoln, Nebraska, this place, Lincoln, Nebraska, that I never wanted to move to, and uh, I really thought it was a cornfield with a football stadium in the center. (laughs) Um, So I came out here to appease him, and then I can't really describe it other than it just felt like home. So... I stayed and was ordained a priest in 2005, spent four years teaching high school, and then it was time for me to go back in the army. Went to Bishop Bruskowitz, asked to go back in the army, and he sort of counteroffered with going to graduate school. Um, sort of saying, like, oh, you'd be great, you'd be great, you'll probably be a general, but I think you should go study marriage and family and human sexuality at the John Paul II Institute in Rome. And uh, so he left it up to me, right? You can do whatever you want. I think you should do this. Remember, you made a promise of obedience. <laughs> so, um, so I ended up going to Rome, and it was the best thing that could have ever happened in my life. And it saved my priesthood in many ways. Um, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about that as we go through today. Um, So the title for this first part of the day is Parenting for Purity of Heart. And what I want to do is we're going to talk about the dangers of the culture. We're going to talk about the dangers of being exposed to pornography. But really what we're talking about is proclaiming the gospel and making space in our lives to encounter Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the talk. It's not just a matter of talking about all the dark places and the dark things. Because the talks about the dark places and the dark things and how you can get sued, usually people leave those things feeling really traumatized and then they don't do anything. But what we want to do is open up a space, right? To open up a space for our young people to encounter our Lord. Because it is true that today, young people are being exposed to hardcore pornography at the age of eight. That's average Right? That's not sort of an occasional thing. It's average. And that has been dropping over the last few years. When I started doing this ministry about two years ago, it was 11, was what was in most of the publications. Now, a lot of studies are saying it's eight. I've seen kids in my office who are seven. I've had calls from grandmas about their seven-year-old grandchildren. I have a lot of friends who specialize in doing therapy for people who are caught up in sexual addiction, and they have seen kids that are seven. And so there is a sense of urgency about that. You know, why is that? Because technology has changed so much, even in the last 10 years. You know, when I left to go to Rome, I taught high school. The biggest distraction in my classroom was kids texting each other during class, right? Because they could reach in their pocket and they knew where the buttons were on their phone, and they could send messages. They'd be, like, cranking over in their seats. And 
What are you doing? Nothing. I'm just itching. I'm scratching an itch. One time I was up writing on the board and my phone goes off and it says, hey, let's get this class going from one of my students. Right? And it was kind of fun and it was good and you, know, you could kind of joke around about it. It was fine. But now kids can't do that because they all have screens on their phones. But every single phone is basically an X-rated movie theater in their pocket. And so how are we going to respond to that? You know, Pope Francis, when he was first elected pope, he gave this article in America Magazine. And in that article, he said this, the church, the thing the church needs most today is the ability to heal wounds and warm the hearts of the faithful. It needs nearness and proximity. I see the church as a field hospital after battle. It's useless to ask a seriously injured person if he has high cholesterol or about the level of his blood sugars. You have to heal his wounds. Then we can talk about everything else. Heal the wounds, heal the wounds. And you have to start from the ground up. And this has been a guiding principle for Pope Francis as Pope. Like, he's always talking about mercy. He just called this year of mercy. And is calling the church to be an instrument of mercy because Christ is the face of the Father's mercy. And oftentimes, he's right. Like, we have these wounds in our society and we have wounds in our churches but we tend to talk about the level of our blood sugars instead of talking about those wounds. You know, I was on the phone with a priest who called me because at his high school, his Catholic high school, kids were passing around username and passwords for pay pornography sites. Some kid found his dad's username and password, and they started passing it around to everybody so they could have access to it. And so the solution that that school came up with was, well, let's just have somebody come talk to the kids about chastity. Not a talk about the dangers of pornography. Not a parent talk to bring all the parents in and say, this is what our kids are doing, we need your help. But a talk about chastity. So sort of like, you're created for love and da-da-da. We know that. But there is this wound that's being inflicted on our kids. And if we don't actually confront it and talk about it, it's just going to stay there. You know, it's just going to stay there. I've seen amazing things happen in the life of young people who simply come into my office and they say, Father, I have a problem with pornography. Okay, let's talk about that. Boom. Then the space starts to open up and they start to heal. When they leave that a secret and they say, Father, I just want to talk to you about, you know, my spiritual life, it doesn't get healed because that secret kind of stays down there. And it it's really is like trying to excavate that wound and clean it out completely. Pope Benedict XVI, right at the end of his pontificate, he had this quote where he talks about the family's role. And he says, the new evangelization depends largely on the domestic church. In our time, as in times past, the eclipse of God, the spread of ideology is contrary to the family, and the degradation of sexual ethics are connected. And just as the eclipse of God and the crisis of the family are linked, so the new evangelization is inseparable from the Christian family. The family is indeed the way of the church because it is the human space of our encounter with Christ. The family is indeed the way of the church because it is the human space of our encounter with Christ. 
which means the gospel message has to be proclaimed in our families. And it's proclaimed most especially in the love that you have for your children and the way they experience your love. They know what it means that God is merciful because you are merciful. They learn what it means that God is consistent in their life because you are consistent in their life. They learn what it means that the Lord is a refuge because you are a refuge. And as that breaks down in family life, then our ability to see God is impeded. You know, the biggest way that that's breaking down, Pope Benedict says that the eclipse of God, the spread of ideologies contrary to the family, and the degradation of sexual ethics are connected. And so this sin of impurity really does impede our ability to see God. And when Jesus says, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God, it's real. It's real. And I've seen that in the ministry that I do. Like I have seen men who have been addicted to pornography and masturbation for 40 years stop, and their eyes open, and they start to see colors again. They start to see beauty again. They'll say things like, Father, how do I explain to somebody what red looks like if they've never seen red before? Everything's more beautiful. Food tastes better. My wife is more beautiful. My kids are more beautiful. Because they start to see things more clearly. Right? Because with purity of heart, we can see God. And most especially, we start to see God in each other. All of us were created for love. John Paul II in the first thing he ever wrote as Pope said, man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible to himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him. If he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. Right? The only thing that matters in our life is love. It is the fundamental thing. It's the fundamental thing. That sense of being affirmed, that sense of belonging to another, of finding ourselves in relationship with another. When we don't find ourselves in relationship to another, our experience is filled with great loneliness. You know, loneliness is the result of nobody really knows me. And we do live in one of the loneliest times in history. And why do we live in a lonely time in history? Because the devil has a plan for your family. In Luke's gospel, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed that your own faith may not fail. And once you have turned back, you must strengthen your brethren. The devil wants to sift all of you like wheat. And I always think about a family, and they're sitting around the kitchen table, and they're playing cards, you know, they're playing pitch. They're laughing, they're talking, they're sharing their day. And then this big sifter comes in under the table, and the devil starts cranking on the sifter. And everybody comes out the bottom staring at their iPhones. Right? That's what our families look like sometimes. I've had couples come in because they want counseling, and I'll ask them, do you spend time together? Well, yeah, we usually watch TV at the end of the day, and he's on his iPhone, and I'm on the iPad. 
sitting on opposite sides of the room. It's not spending time together. And technology is not evil, but it is a great temptation to be sifted like wheat, right? to be cut off from relationships. I was talking to a group of eighth graders at one of our grade schools, and I asked them, how many of you have ever been at home, and you're waiting for your dad to come back from work, and you want to tell him about your day, or you have some exciting news for him, and he comes in, and he says, hang on a second, I just got to like, check this last email. Right? Every single kid raised their hand. How did that make you feel? And they said, like I don't matter, like I'm second rate, like I'm not important. That's what they learned in that simple moment of, let me just check this last email. Right? And we all have to be more conscious of that. I do this to people too. Right? I do this to people too. My friends, Matt and Jen, they're going to get up and talk at the second half of the day and they'll probably tell stories about how I go to their house for dinner, and sometimes I'm on my phone. Right, I do it too. I was in a meeting with my boss one day, and he was like doing his email during, while I was sitting there, and I felt like, wow, I really don't matter. You know, that's the signal that we send sometimes. And while technology is not the great evil of the world, it can be used to illustrate how the devil wants to sift all of us like wheat. Right? Because in our own lifetime, I'm 40. So when I was a kid, some people communicated with this technology. Right? The party line phone. One phone number for four households. Right? No secrecy. No anonymity. No privacy. The neighbor listens in on all your conversations. Right? Likelihood of getting in trouble pretty low. So then technology picked up a little bit and we all got our own phone numbers, but the phone was on a short cord in the kitchen. So junior high, if a girl called me in junior high at 10 in the morning on a Saturday, mom would start prepping for dinner. Right? Like, what are you doing? I'm I'm making dinner. Dinner's not till like seven hours from now. Right? Was she spying on me? Not really. I don't have a right to privacy like that. She really just wanted to make sure she knew who I was talking to and what we were talking about, right? Watching over me. So then the devil wants to zip the salt like wheat. So what did we do? We got a really long cord and went to the pantry, <laughs> right? Some of you did this. And then we got cordless phones. This teen line, this was the biggest scandal in the 1990s. Right? Parents were calling each other all over this town. Are you going to let your kids have a teen line? We can't let them have a teen line. If they have a teen line, we won't know who they're talking to. They could be on the phone all night. A teen line, it's just a separate phone number that rings in your house. But this was a big issue for parents because they were worried that their kids would be keeping secrets from them, would be private, would be getting in trouble. And then we had email, which we just used to send long letters really fast until instant messaging came along and we invented a new language. Nowadays, everybody has their own phone number in a household. Nobody knows who anybody's talking to. Right? The most popular way for young people to communicate right, via social media, social media has like, taken over and changed communication again. 
right? Why do we use social media? What's the purpose of social media in the life of a young person? It's to hide from their parents. That's why they use it. Some of you are shaking your head. There's some high school kids there that are like, no, it's not, right? Sociological studies and psychologists, they say things like this. Young people don't like to use Facebook anymore. They're not on Facebook. They don't use Facebook messaging anymore. This is a very interesting sociological phenomenon, right? Why don't young people send Facebook messaging or use Facebook? Because grandma's on Facebook. (laughs) That's why. It's because grandma's on Facebook. And so, like, there's always new social media coming out. And all of the social media that comes out, if we look at it objectively, it's all based around anonymity and privacy. Right? Anonymity and privacy. Right? The most popular way that young people tend to communicate today is this app called Snapchat. Right? It's the most popular way people send messages. They send messages by Snapchat. Why? One of the reasons why is because you read their text messages... And if you send it via Snapchat, you send a picture and a message that disappears in 10 seconds when somebody else reads it, right? So it's a message that self-destructs. It's like Inspector Gadget or Mission Impossible, right? But unless your kids work for the CIA, you don't really need to send messages that self-destruct in 10 seconds, right? Because the reality is when the app developers were developing Snapchat, they were not sitting around a table having this conversation, We really need an application so that 12-year-olds can take goofy pictures of themselves and send them to each other and have them disappear in 10 seconds. That's not why the app developers developed Snapchat. The app developers developed Snapchat because in 2007 there was a flood of lawsuits because people were sending naked pictures to each other on text messaging and then those pictures were being captured and then made public. And so what did they need? They needed an application so that people could send naked pictures that would disappear in 10 seconds and they couldn't be captured and made public. But now there's an application that will help you to capture them and make them public. Right? One of our high schools in Lincoln, our Catholic high school in Lincoln, there were a bunch of kids whose phones were confiscated by the police because of the inappropriate pictures that were on their phone. And more often than not, they were pictures that weren't solicited or looked for. They were just like somebody sent them. Okay, I can't tell you how many parents have called me and said, some creepy person asked my daughter to send him a naked selfie. Okay, it happens. I had a mom come in and she said, my daughter was really depressed and some kid told her, send me a naked selfie, it'll help you feel better. Right? I'm not saying everybody's doing that, but that's what the application's for and it can be super dangerous. Right? If your kids are sending naked pictures with their phones and they have those on their phones, that's called child pornography. And you, as the owner of the phone, can be prosecuted for possession. Right? I was just on the phone with the prosecutor the other day talking about this dynamic. Right? It's important to remember that, to realize that. Okay, it's, our kids should realize that too. Like our young people should realize that. Like what they do with their phone is not their thing because it's whatever content's on their phone. The parents are the ones who own the phone and the, you're the one who's legally liable. Okay, so unless your kids work for the CIA, they probably don't need that application. All right, sorry, young people. They're all just like, Father, it's just fun. 
Okay, story of salvation. So that's kind of a little of the darkness, but what we want to focus on is the gospel message, right? Because we want to learn how to love as we're called to love. And scripture gives us a roadmap for love. It gives us a roadmap for relationship, right? And this entire book of scripture can be summarized in about 10 seconds, right? It goes something like this. God created the world and everything was good. Then something happened called original sin. And things became, everybody wants to say bad, evil. So distorted, right? It's like antenna TV when we had antenna TV. Okay, you point the antenna and you get this fuzzy picture. You can tell you're watching a football game. It's just not clear. Right? So love becomes distorted because of original sin. Right? So the family here was a mother, a father, and their natural children. Okay? And everything was good. The family here is the family of Israel. Right? Israel is Jacob. Jacob went off and he met a woman and he fell in love with her. And he went to the father and he asked permission to marry Rachel. And then he got tricked into marrying her uglier older sister, Leah. And so he marries Leah and then has to wait seven more years working for his father-in-law before he can marry the woman he loves. Finally, he marries the woman he loves. Yes. But she can't have babies. And she's jealous because Leah's been having babies. So she says, take my concubine and have babies with my concubine. And then Leah gets jealous and says, take my concubine now and have babies with my concubine. So the family of distortion is... One dad, four moms, 12 brothers who all hate each other and sell Joseph to the Egyptians. Right? It's just like the Kilkali family. Right? It's like a lot of our families. Right? But it's still a family. Okay? It's still a family. It's just not clear. And the gospel message says that Jesus entered into that family. Right? He entered into that distorted family. It's how we read scripture. It's always like, crazy people in the history of salvation, and they're faithful, not faithful, faithful, not faithful. And then Jesus enters into that. In Matthew chapter 1, there's this huge genealogy. It starts with Abraham, and it goes through all these names, and we get bored. It's like Abraham was the father of Isaac, was the father of Jacob, blah, blah, blah. But in that genealogy, there's some interesting characters, like Tamar. Right? Tamar was married to a man, and then he died. And then he, she married his brother, then he died. Then Judah promised, I will give you my third son when he's old enough. Go and be a widow. So she goes off and plays a widow, but Judah never sends a son. So in the midst of her insecurities, in the midst of wondering if Judah's ever going to take care of her, she hears Judah's in town, dresses up like a prostitute, goes and seduces him, gets pregnant, and then shows up saying, ha, you got me pregnant, now you have to take care of me. Right? Not the holy family of Nazareth. But it's part of Jesus' genealogy. And then Ruth, not a member of the people of God. Rahab was a prostitute that helped the Israelites take Jericho. And then it names the wife of Uriah, or Bathsheba, who was seduced by David. And then David had her husband killed. And at the end of that long list of people, then it says, then was born Jesus. So if Jesus can be born into that family, he can be born into my family. If Jesus can be born into that family, he can be born into your family. No matter what has happened to cause a distortion, so that we can all grow in virtue, clarity, and eventually get to heaven, right? That's the roadmap of redemption. Okay, it's also my autobiography, right? It's also your autobiography, right? I was born into a world where everything was good. At minimum, in utero, everything was good. 
Then something happened. My mom died when I was two years old. My dad was an alcoholic. He was kind of like absent in the home most of the time when I was growing up. I used to get bullied at the bus stop. When I was in high school, there were a bunch of rumors that I was gay. I got exposed to pornography when I was 10 at a neighbor's house. All those things are things that happened in my life that caused the distortion about who I was and who God was and about relationships between men and women. But then our Lord entered into my life in order to transform it so that I could love as I'm supposed to love. And that's what he wants to do in all of our lives is enter into that distortion. Like whatever's a mess in our life, he wants to enter into it. You know, and most of the time, at least in our faith tradition, people are very reluctant to let Jesus into their mess. The book of Revelation says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And what do we do? We start like tidying up our room. I gotta clean up my Jesus is knocking on the door. I gotta clean up my room. But he really just wants to come into our messy room so that he can put it back in order again. To come into whatever is distorted in our life in order to make it clear again. So that we can love as we are called to love. And the Trinity gives us the model of love. It gives us the model of love. St. Thomas Aquinas says that the persons of the Trinity are distinct by their relationship. And so in the Trinity, there are three kinds of relationship, right? Three kinds of relationship, or three kinds of love. And this is a particular kind of love that we call fatherhood, right? And fatherhood says, I want the good for you. This is the way you love your kids, that you sacrifice for them, that their needs are more important than your needs. This is the kind of love that's an active love or a sacrificial love. It's the kind of love when I go and I crash dinner at my friend's house and uh, they always say I'm welcome, but sometimes the mom doesn't end up eating dinner. She ends up eating potato chips because I showed up and I'm eating her portion. And I'm like, aren't you hungry? No, I'm good. Really happy. And she actually is because she lives out that kind of sacrificial love all the time. Mothers are trained for that. This is a different kind of love, right? The love of the son for the father or this sonship or daughterhood, it has to be completely different from fatherhood. So if fatherhood is this sacrificial giving love, then to be a son is to be receptive of that gift, right? To receive the gift. Another word we can use is to entrust yourself to this person who wants the good for you, right? To entrust your life to them completely. And that's language we don't always use. Like, we don't say, I entrust my life to you. It sounds kind of weird. We use it about things. Like, when I'm doing this talk with young kids, I'll pull out my pen, and I'll say, I entrust you to hold on to my pen. And how much do I have to know you? Not at all. Pull out my car keys. I entrust you with my car keys. And then all these fifth graders are like, whoa. Right? I entrust my life to you means I could turn off my brain and let you make all my decisions for the rest of the day. And I know that at the end of the day, my life's going to be better than it was at the beginning. Right? How many people can we say that about? And when you got married, you took your spouse's hands in your hands and you said, I take you as my husband, I take you as my wife. I entrust my life to you. When I was ordained a priest, 
I knelt down in front of Bishop Breskowitz and I put my hands in his hands. And he said, do you promise respect and obedience to me and my successors? And I said, I do. I entrust my life to you. I think. You know, because if I'm honest, that is the hardest thing that we ever do. Right? It's the hardest thing we do. When I was studying in Rome, and I'm learning about sonship, daughterhood, fatherhood, motherhood, family life, and I come from the family I came from, it caused me a lot of agitation, and I started to get depressed. And I remember going to bed at night, and my mind would just drift to, what if I didn't even come here in the first place, and I was in Afghanistan as a chaplain right now? And I start to fantasize about, what if I was in Afghanistan as a chaplain right now? And my thoughts would go to that all day. And then they would drift even farther to, what if I never got out of the military and I stayed in? I'd be a lieutenant colonel. You know, I'd have this great career and I wouldn't be sitting here in class right now. And then it would go, what if I married my high school girlfriend? I'd have kids who are 15 by now. All of that. I'm sure that never happens in married life. Never. But it's when our mind drifts. And when our mind drifts, we're not entrusting our life. I was not living out that in my life at that time. And I remember going on this run, and because I was starting to question my priesthood, everything, and I was on this run, I was going by St. Peter's Basilica, and I looked up at the Basilica, and I said out loud, I want to be a priest. That was the first time in my life I'd ever said out loud, I want to be a priest. And I'd been a priest for seven years. But I never said I want to be a priest. I always said, I want to do whatever God wants me to do. I think God wants me to be a priest. I want to do what God wants. That's as far as it went. right? But I want to do whatever God wants me to do. My spiritual director would be like, oh, that's so good. You're so holy. But I wasn't holy. I was looking for a holy loophole. Like if I only want to do what God wants... At a certain point in the future, I could figure out, well, I was wrong about what God wanted, and he really wants this, and I can change my mind. You know, how often do we see that? You know, we see that in really faithful Christian couples who down the road, things start to get hard, and then they're like, well, God didn't really want us to be together. He wanted me to be with this person. Making that act of faith or entrusting ourselves means I want, I desire the very thing that God wants. So if I believe God wants me to be a priest, that's where I order my desire. That's what I want. The Holy Spirit is the fruitfulness of the love between the Father and the Son. St. Augustine says the Holy Spirit like, is the love between them. And if we ask ourselves, who are these people? Like, What's their identity? The Father's identity is to be for the Son, right? He's always going to be pointing toward the Son. The Son's identity, we know, is to be from the Father. Jesus says, whoever sees me sees the Father. Don't you know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The Father and I are one. And the Holy Spirit is a being with the Father and the Son, right? To be with the Father and the Son. So Pope Benedict says this, the real God is by his very nature entirely being for, being from, and being with. Man, for his part, is God's image precisely insofar as the from, with, and for constitute the fundamental anthropological pattern. Whenever we attempt to free ourselves from this pattern, we're not on our way to divinity, but to dehumanization, to the destruction of being itself through the destruction of the truth. 
So we're created to be a child, a being from, who becomes a spouse, a being with, in order to become a parent, a mother, a father, a being for. And our fundamental identity is to be a beloved son or a beloved daughter. That's our identity. Our identity is at that level of being from. It's Jesus who reveals to us who we are. And we live in a world that's confused about that. We live in a world that thinks identity is about who I'm with. I don't have value unless I have a boyfriend. I don't have value unless I have a girlfriend. Right? I grew up in a family that was pretty distorted, so I didn't believe I had value unless a girl liked me. I was one of those kids. Ever since seventh grade, I had a girlfriend all the time. Right up until the day I went to the seminary. Which is crazy. I would never let me go to the seminary. But our Lord is able to redeem, right? Our Lord was able to redeem that. And when God created us in the beginning, he created us first as sons and daughters, right? When he creates Adam, and Adam is alone in the garden, he says it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a suitable helpmate. But in the beginning, when he was alone, God wanted the good for him. He said, don't eat that fruit or you'll die. I don't want you to die. I want you to live forever. I want the good for you. And Adam believed God, and he trusted God. He entrusted himself to God, and everything was good. And he was in relationship with God. John Paul II reflected on how Adam is sort of finding himself in the world, and as he looks around the world, he realizes he's more like God than the world. So he sees this thing on the ground, he picks it up. He's like, this is made out of material, so am I. But it can't move around like I can move around, so I'm not like the rock, I'm like God. Then he sees this other thing, and this thing can grow, and it seems to be alive, but it doesn't move around, it can't speak, I'm not like the tree, I'm like God. And he starts to have a longing for someone like himself. And so then he sees this creature that can move around like he can, and he starts to perk up. And this creature moves towards him, and this creature has beautiful eyes. This creature is very soft. And then this creature jumps up on him and licks his face. And he says, oh, it's just a dog. And he goes through this process of naming all the animals. It's just a dog. It's just a giraffe. It's just a rhinoceros. And then God finally puts a deep sleep on him. And when he wakes from that sleep, he sees this creature. And her body is like his body, but not like his body. And when he looks into her eyes, he sees that she knows the same God that he knows. And he cries out, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He has this at last moment. This is the person that's like me. She knows the same God as I know. John Paul II says, he knows her as sister before he knows her as bride. In the Song of Songs, it constantly says, my sister, my bride. And they have the at last moment, right? All of that is just like dating and marriage. Right? It's like dating and marriage. When you were young, you saw this guy and you're like, he's so good at sports and he's really funny and he's so muscular and he's great. And then you went to coffee and you were like, nah, it's just a dog. <laughs> and there might have been a lot of dogs until finally the at last moment, that moment when you said, this is the person I'm going to be with. Right? And then you're able to love her with the love you've received from the Father. Right? She's able to love him with the love she's received from the Father. She wants the good for him. 
they also entrust their lives to each other completely. And when they do that in the most complete spiritual, emotional, physical, bodily way, a third person comes forth. Right? And the family itself is an image of God's love in the Trinity. Right? The family itself is an image of God's love in the Trinity. Now both Adam and his wife can love as a son or a daughter, as husband and wife, and as mother and father. And everything's good. Then something happens. Right? What happens in original sin? The evil one introduces doubt about the fact that God wants the good. He says, did God really say you can't eat any of the fruit of the trees of the garden? And they say, no, he didn't say that. He said, just this one tree. We can't eat it or touch it or we'll die. And then he says, you will not die. You'll be like God. God doesn't really want the good for you. Right? He doesn't really want you to be happy. He doesn't really want you to have joy. He wants to keep you down. He wants to make you a slave. Right? And when we doubt that God wants the good for us, we cannot entrust our lives to him. We, we declare our autonomy from him. We say, I'm going to do everything by myself. I'm not going to trust anybody. And we lose our identity as sons and daughters. Right? The Holy Spirit was evicted from their hearts and it leaves this emptiness in their life, right? Sin always leaves emptiness in our life. And then when we have that emptiness in our life, when the man is confronted with a woman, he doesn't see her as somebody that knows the same God that he knows. He sees her as somebody that maybe she can fill up this emptiness in my life. Because if God's not trustworthy, then neither is she. But maybe she can fill up what's missing in me. Or she says, if God's not trustworthy, neither is he, but maybe he can fill up what's missing in me. And that relationship becomes ruptured. Right? All sins against chastity between men and women, they're all on that slide. This sort of selfish way of relating to another person. Right? And in fact, all sins against chastity, they kind of play themselves out on this slide, but they really started on this slide. Right? Unchastity is about a broken relationship with God. When we talk about pornography and the sin of pornography, we tend to have a lot of rhetoric that says pornography hates women, pornography is using women. You know, the pornography industry, like, it trashes women. We know that. It's true. But the reason an individual person looks at pornography, it's not because they hate women most of the time, especially when they're like good people or they're good kids, they're from a good family. It's because they have an inability to be alone with God. If they're looking at pornography when they're bored, lonely, angry, stressed, tired, agitated, feeling misunderstood, it's their refuge. It's something that changes their mood so they don't have to feel their negative feelings. And it becomes their refuge. Right? Psalm 71. In you, O Lord, I take refuge. That means the Lord is the one we should be going to when we're bored, lonely, angry, stressed, tired, feeling misunderstood. But instead, we go to this thing. People go to pornography. People go to masturbation. People also go to excessive work. People also go to alcohol. People also go to drugs. They go to worldly things which have taken the place of God. And so the healing process from all of this happens in relationship with God. 
right? There's one more distortion that happens because of sin, and that's the distortion between parents and children. Because a person can't take the place of God in my life. And so many times when that marriage relationship is ruptured, what happens? Each parent kind of isolates the child and counts on the child to fill their emotional needs, right? This is what I've seen in my own family where my parents were divorced. It's also in scripture where you have Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Esau. Who does Rebecca love best? Jacob. She goes to Jacob and says, I want you to dress up like your brother and go and lie to your father and betray him so that your father will give you the blessing because I love you best. So Jacob's in this impossible scenario, right? He either can betray his father and please his mother or be faithful to his father and displease his mother. But in either case, he's the being for the parent instead of the parent for him. In psychology, they call it that, the parentized child. We also see it in the daughter of Herodias, like when John the Baptist is beheaded. The daughter of Herodias, tradition says her name is Salome, and she grew up in a family where she had a mom and a dad. Then her mom left her dad and married her Uncle Herod, and she moved in with Uncle Herod. And Uncle Herod's kind of a creepy guy, and he makes her dress up and dance provocatively in front of all of his friends to be pleasing to them. And she has to do it, because her mom makes her. And she's lost her identity completely because at the point where Herod says, I will give you anything up to half my kingdom, she doesn't even have the voice to say what she wants. She goes to her mom and says, Mom, what do I want? Ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. You know, all of these things are things, they happen in our real lives too. You know, like I can tell you the day that I experienced loss of sonship. I was four years old, and I went to my dad, and I said, Dad, can we go fishing? And he said, when you're older. Okay, we're going to go fishing when I'm older. And I have this idea in my head, we're going fishing when I'm older. And then time just goes by, and I start to realize we've never gone fishing. So I go to my dad at about age seven, and I say, am I older? He's like, what are you talking about? You said we go fishing when I'm older. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll go. Yes. So I start to imagine fishing. What does it look like? Saturday morning, you get up early, go out on a boat, you spend the day together, just me and my dad. Fishing turned out to be, dad came home on a Thursday, we got in the car in the afternoon, we drove to a fishing farm where they had these wells and they starved the fish at the bottom of the well. We dropped in our fishing line, we pulled out a fish, home in 45 minutes, fishing with my dad. What did I learn? If my dad makes a promise to me, I have to drop my expectations about three levels. He's not trustworthy. And I love my dad. And my dad did his best. But it wasn't trustworthy there. And I remember this getting so ingrained in me that um, Christmas was coming and my younger sister thought she was going to get a computer for Christmas. And I remember pulling her aside and having a talk and saying, you're probably getting a typewriter because I didn't want her to be hurt. I didn't want her to be hurt. But somehow we developed that kind of idea that I'm not supposed to have good things. You know, another thing that happened was my, um, my mom died when I was two. And then when I was about four, we moved out of the house that we had lived in when my mom died into another house. And when we moved, a lot of relationships were kind of cut off. And my parents got me a dog. This is a cocker spaniel dog named Casey. And I love that dog. And the dog loved me. And the dog hated everybody else in my family. 
So one day, Casey bit my sister, I think. And then a few days later, I woke up on a Saturday and I went down to the kitchen and there was like no dog dish there. Just no dog dish. And I started looking in the dishwasher and I started going through the cupboards and I'm going through the cupboards and there's like no dog food, no dog dish, no dog mat, no sign that the dog ever existed. I'm starting to feel like, and mom calls me upstairs and she says, Shawnee, daddy took Casey to the farm so he could run around with the other dogs and be happy. And I was like crushed because what did I come up with? Well, I'm just not supposed to be happy. I'm not supposed to have good things. And I asked to go to the farm a few times, but we all know the farm doesn't exist. And I sort of developed from that point forward the gospel of the suck. Right? The gospel of the suck is the gospel that says, God created the world and life's supposed to suck. If you persevere in the suck, at the end of your life, God will throw you a party. Yes, want to be a Christian? Right? Lots of us have the gospel of the suck. It's like, the God, it's like when we believe God doesn't want me to be happy. I'm not supposed to be joyful in this life. My cross is to go through life miserable. I'm, I don't deserve to be treated well. We have that. And today, where does that come from? Most profoundly in the hearts of our young people, it comes when there's a loss of sonship because of pornography exposure. That's where it comes. If it's true that young people are being exposed to pornography at the age of 8, 9, 10, and we imagine an 8, 9, 10-year-old who's on their computer or they're on their iPod that they got for Christmas and they're scrolling through, they're online, they click, 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 they do a Google search for Minecraft, because they all love Minecraft, and what they get is the triple X Minecraft parody, which happened to a kid, I know. And then they get exposed to pornography, and they don't know what they're seeing, and it makes them feel gross, and it makes them feel excited, and it makes them feel curious, and they kind of know it's wrong, but they, don't, but they want to look more. Right? That's what happens when we have early sexualization. And in this mixture of good feelings and bad feelings and feeling violated and feeling curious, it's all going on inside of them, and they need a refuge to go and help them to sort it out. So what do they do? They run to their mom and say, Mom, 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 guess what I just saw on the internet? Hardly ever does that happen. So they just keep it inside of them. And then they start to withdraw. And then you go to them and you say, Hey, how was your day today? Good. Fine. Don't ask me any questions. What were you doing in your room this afternoon? Nothing. Homework. Nothing. Don't ask me any questions. Because they're afraid that you're going to find out the secret. And they're probably afraid they're going to get in trouble. And so they end up keeping it a secret. And then they withdraw from mom and dad. And as they withdraw from mom and dad, then they feel more agitated. And the only thing they know is when they looked at that thing on the internet, it kind of made them feel fuzzy. And they end up going back and looking at it again and again and again and again and again. I've met with 18-year-olds who have been addicted to pornography for 10 years at 18. Which is crazy when I think about that. I got exposed to pornography when I was 10 at a neighbor's house. It was like single dad, young girl. The girl was my younger sister's friend, and we went over to, to play ColecoVision. And uh, some of you 
you might not even know what ColecoVision is, right? It's like Atari that doesn't help either. So we went over there to play video games, and, uh, and he had Playboy magazines all spread out on the coffee table in the front room. It was like a treasure. We were like, yes. And we just started looking at Playboy magazines. And then I went upstairs, and upstairs there were like hardcore magazines, nasty magazines that made me feel gross. So all I learned was I like Playboy, but I don't like that one. And after that, I always remembered that was the house where they have pornography. But I could never go in there again. I didn't really know these people. It was a fluke that I was there. Every time I went by there, I would just remember it. Right? I would remember it. But I couldn't see it. Right? Today, something similar happens. A kid goes to a sleepover at a friend's house, and they have Cinemax. And they stay up, and they watch Cinemax, and they see nudity. And they're like, wow, this is amazing. This is a treasure. And then they go home, and they pull out their iPod, and boom, they can see it again. And again, and again, and again, and again, and again. You know, it's completely different, the world we live in today, than it was when I was growing up. And, like, that's why we have to be so vigilant about it, because, like, no parent would ever have the Playboy channel at home on the, on the cable. But sometimes we forget that having one of these is the same thing if you have a Wi-Fi connection. You know, if you filter your Wi-Fi at home, you can say, we filter our Wi-Fi. But if you take one of these to McDonald's, you can get on the Wi-Fi and go anywhere you want. Right? So there are tools that we can put in place because all of that gets in the way of our relationship with God and it distorts our image of God and we lose sight of what our life is about, which is being sons and daughters of God, which happens in Jesus' death on the cross. Right? Our redemption is this moment in which we were restored as sons and daughters of God by God's mercy. And so the cross is the proof that God wants the good for you. Right? It's the proof that God wants the good for you and that God has always wanted the good for you. And if we believe what we see there, then we can entrust our lives to him. <clears throat> right? Like as Catholics, we use a crucifix with the body of Jesus on it, to reflect more profoundly on Jesus' death because he died for our sins. But when we look at that Jesus on the cross who died for us, what do we see? Because oftentimes what we see is that's the place where Jesus died for my sin. Every time I sin, it hurts Jesus. And so that's the place where Jesus had to suffer because I'm a bonehead. And every time I do this, I'm hurting him again. Right? That's half of the gospel message. It's only half, though. Right? It's only half. And we get this idea in our head. Every time we sin, we drive another nail into Jesus' hands. Dad brought his 12-year-old in to see me because the 12-year-old was struggling with pornography. And I sit down with him and ask him questions. And I said, how old were you the first time you saw pornography? And he said, fourth grade. Wow. Do you remember where you were? Yes. Do you remember what you saw? Yes. Okay, so I want you to think about Jesus comes into the room that day that you saw pornography on accident on the internet that had just popped up on you. What does he do? And he says, oh, he's just so mad at me right now. He's just looking at me like, I can't believe you're doing that again. Well, what does he say to you? He says, I'm hurting people, that it's not good for me. These are all true things, but I'm not really sure they're true, like that Jesus would say that. Because I had to look at him and I had to say, like, you were like 11. You're 11. 
Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for them if a millstone were put around their neck and they'd be thrown into the sea. Jesus would come into your room and he'd probably be angry at the internet, not at you. He'd flip over your computer like he was cleansing the temple, kneel down in front of you, pull your head into his shoulder and say, I'm sorry this happened to you. This shouldn't have happened to you. I will always love you. I will never abandon you. This shouldn't have happened to you. I will always love you. I will never abandon you. Over and over and over again, until I start to see tears welling up in this 12-year-old's eyes as he's realizing that Jesus loves him even when he sins. That is the message of mercy. That is the message of the cross. When we look at the crucifix, it's a place where Jesus died because of my sin, but also because of every sin that's ever been committed against me. Every sin that's ever been committed against me, which means when I felt like I wasn't good enough, like my dad would never really think I was good enough to go real fishing, when I felt like I was alone or abandoned or afraid, or when I felt shame, Jesus felt all those things because of the consequence of sin. And he gave his life to heal me, right, to restore me. You know, that is the message of mercy, right? That's the mercy that we need to be able to extend to our young people. You know, so how can we do that better as parents? Like, how can we be that place of encounter with Christ in the family Because we do live in a world where pornography has become a structure of sin. What that means is that the personal sin of pornography of so many people has become so prevalent in our society that it's just become a societal norm. If you watch normal network television, inevitably you will see an episode where they just talk about pornography casually. I was watching Heroes Reborn and there was this scene where this kid says, I'm famous on the internet. He was like a gamer. And the cab driver says, what porn site are you on? That's the dialogue of the show. Classy. There was an episode of Bones, which is like a detective show. The beginning of the show was two 12-year-olds looking for pornography on the internet. Google this. Look for this. Type in this. And then they find a dead body on the beach and they go, like, you know, solve the crime. If a young person who has been raised in a family that's been completely like, good, we don't have anything on our devices, we don't have devices, we're protecting our kids, if they see that show, they're going to go look for that. Just puts an idea in their head. Right? And so, because it's become a structure of sin, like even a cell phone has become an occasion of sin. It's become a dangerous place. It's become a dangerous place because... It can provide access to all those things. When curiosity wakes up, it can provide access to find the thing again or to look up what they heard about. I've heard so many stories about kids who just Googled sex because somebody was talking about sex and they ended up on something really nasty. And then the, the, new, the other thing that's a real danger in our society that we all have to be on a watch out for is peer-to-peer sexual abuse, which is happening more and more because kids are being exposed to pornography. Right, more and more there are these stories of like 10-year-old sexually abusing their 7-year-old brother or sister. Right? And it's because of what they've seen in pornography. So 
So all parents are called to safeguard their children and to keep them from occasions of sin, right? To be more aware of this. You know, there's a study that just came out um, by the Barna Group, and, uh, and there were some really interesting things. It's gonna, the full findings are going to be released in April at a conference called the Set Free Summit, which is sponsored by Covenantized Accountability Software and Josh McDowell Ministries. I'm the token Catholic speaker at that conference. Um, so, but two of the things that they came out with that I thought were really interesting were that Generation Xers, I guess that's me. It's like if you were raised in the 80s, 90s, uh, 14% of Generation Xers were exposed to pornography before puberty. Millennials, anybody want to guess? 27% of Millennials were exposed to pornography before puberty. Right? One generation gap. And we've gone from 14% to 27%, over a quarter. Right? If we don't start changing the culture, if we don't start changing our behavior, that's just going to get worse and worse and worse. Because I'm thinking about marriage preparation, and that means like 30% of my marriage preparations in the next in 10 years from now are going to be addicted to pornography. Right? Other statistics, like 90% of boys coming out of high school have had a pornography problem. That means 90% of my marriage preps. Right? How many of us want our daughters to marry a guy who has a pornography problem? Nobody. Right? When I go talk at college campus, I tell girls, if a guy asks you out, you should say, when was the last time you looked at pornography? It might be awkward, but he'd probably stop. If women band together, guys would probably stop. You know, one of the worst side effects today is that women put up with this. And young girls put up with it. Wives put up with it. And they shouldn't put up with it, right? You're called for greatness. You're called for love. You're called for joy, not to live the gospel of the suck. Another statistic was this. Young people are more likely to believe that not recycling is immoral than to believe that pornography is wrong. Right? That's what they found in this study. Which is fascinating. Why? Because of the fact that it's so permeated the culture, right? And not just in mild ways, in the more direct ways, right? Sometimes I do think that pornography is the deepest wound because another thing that cultural phenomenon right now is like all of this question about gender and gender identity and what is gender and how you can choose your own gender and Bruce Jenner, who was my childhood hero because he was the manliest man on the planet, is now a woman. It's just really confusing. Why is this so like, sw- easy for young people to swallow? I do think it's because of the fact that we have this influx of pornography exposure. Because when we talk about gender and gender identity, and I just want to touch on this a little bit if you have questions you can ask later, there's four categories that I like to use from a psychologist called Mark Yarhaus. And so there's our body type, gender identity, then attraction, then arousal, right? Our body type is just our body type, right? It's either male or female. It's biological sex. It doesn't change. Gender identity is defined as how you feel about, how you feel about who you are, okay? But we don't have feelings in a vacuum. I don't just experience fear out of nowhere. I usually have something happen, like a bear comes up and I get scared. And so it is a feeling, but it's a feeling about my own body type, right? It's the feeling that my inside doesn't match my outside. 
Right? It's a split between the body and the soul. When I say I have a boy body, but I feel like a feminine gender identity. Okay? Gender identity is also fluid, right? How many of us feel more masculine now than we did when we were 12? I think all of us. Right? All of us. If you're 12 and you have questions about feeling comfortable in your body, you're called a normal 12-year-old. Okay? It's normal. It's normal. Okay? If you're a kid who likes drama, it just means you like drama. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have to mean anything about your identity or sexual orientation. It just means you like drama or you like music. I remember being in kindergarten. I loved playing with the girls, and I loved playing house more than I loved playing trucks. And I remember feeling like, I don't like hanging out with boys, but I like hanging out with girls. But that didn't have to mean anything. You know, I probably did experience some questions about that, and I never really had guy friends until I was in the army. But then when I was in the military, I received my masculinity from a bunch of men who I admired. It wasn't necessarily from doing hard things. It was from being accepted by them. I remember this guy, I really, he was way tougher than me, and he came up to me in ranger school, and he said, Kilcally, will you be my ranger buddy? And in that moment, I was like, he actually wants me to have his back. And he's going to look out for me. I'm accepted by him. I belong here. And I never had any kinds of questions or problems relating to guys again. You know, it's something we grow into. Something we grow into. Attraction just means that you're attracted to somebody, right? Attraction can be sexual or non sexual. Admiration is a good thing to admire somebody. If I admire somebody, I want to be around them. I admire Father Mark Sizza from Nebraska City because he's way holier than me and he's more virtuous than me. I admire him. I look up to him. When I'm at a clergy day, who do I want, do I want to sit by? I want to sit by Father Mark Sizza. It doesn't mean I have a sexual attraction to him, but I'm attracted to him. Like, I want to be around him. Right? These are normal things. We should teach young people about admiration. We don't use that word anymore because we're like, everybody gets a trophy. Nobody's better than anybody. If nobody's better than anybody, you can't admire anybody. But we should admire people. And it's good. My favorite admiration scene is Rocky Four, right before Rocky fights Ivan Drago. And Polly says, if I could unzip myself and step outside and become someone else, I would want to be you. Right? That's what it means to admire. And then arousal is just sexual arousal. Right? Sexual arousal also doesn't have to mean anything. Right? If you're a teenage boy, it just happens in the morning. It doesn't have to mean anything. So what's happening? Because when a young person gets exposed to pornography, what happens is it messes with what they get aroused by. It messes with what they get aroused by. It's called an arousal template. Arousal template is usually tuned to what you see first or what you see that's worst. The first or the worst. So if somebody gets exposed to pornography, they experience arousal and it's all confusing for them. Right? I have met with young men who experience same-sex attraction and when we talked about their sexual narrative, their sexual narrative was when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to go to the sex education at school and I googled the curriculum and I started looking at naked men on the internet. That's the first thing he saw. And then he just kept going and escalating, looking at gay pornography. And so he's super confused about things. 
Like he would say he has same-sex attraction, but when I asked him about it, he actually just simply experiences arousal when he's around men who are nice to him. Also, he had no dad at home. Okay, I'm not saying that's every single person's experience, but it is the experience of a lot of people now because of what they're getting exposed to. And so it messes with arousal, and then arousal, we interpret arousal as attraction, and then we interpret attraction as our identity. Right? I find my identity and who I'm attracted to. And where is my identity not? My identity is not being a beloved son or a beloved daughter. Right? The gospel message is always going to be your beloved son, beloved daughter. That's what we want to do. Okay, I have one more slide that I'm just going to buzz through because Jen and Matt are going to talk next. All right, so when opening a conversation like, okay, this is all good information, Father, but what do I do? How do I talk to my kid? Matt and Jen are going to talk about that more. But the perspective that I'd offer is to have mercy that calls to conversion because we always experience conversion and mercy. Right? It's mercy that brings about conversion. It's when that kid realizes that Jesus loved him even when he looked at pornography that he starts to change. The woman caught in adultery in the Gospels, she's caught in the very act of committing adultery. So what does that mean? It means somebody probably broke into the house. She was committing adultery. They grabbed her. They pulled her out in the street. She's probably very lightly clad, if wearing anything at all. This crowd gathers around her, and they're all staring at her. And what are they staring at? Probably her body. And they're all thinking to themselves, she has no value other than her body. And she's thinking to herself, I have no value other than my body. This is as good as it gets. I'll never really have love in my life. And now everybody knows my sin. And they bring her to Jesus and they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Moses commands that we stone such women. What do you say? And he just bends down and writes in the sand. Why? If I was that woman, I'd be staring at the ground. And so he bends down and he sort of writes in the ground. As if to say like, hey, look at my finger. And then she catches his finger and follows it up his arm and looks into his eyes. And he sees that he looks at her differently. Jesus looks at her differently than everybody else looks at her. And she probably looks away again. Then Jesus says, whoever has no sin can cast the first stone. Goes back down and wipes the ground. This time she probably looks into his eyes and locks eyes with him. And everybody in the crowd notices that Jesus looks at her differently than they look at her. And maybe they remember Jesus saying whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. And they all drop their stones and walk away. And then our Lord's able to say, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And the no one, sir, includes herself. Because she sees herself differently through the eyes of our Lord. She sees herself differently through the eyes of our Lord. How do you open that kind of a conversation with your kid? The first thing you do is you have Amnesty Day. This is a big recommendation. What does Amnesty Day mean? Amnesty Day means you're not going to get in trouble for anything you say in the next 45 minutes. You have 45 minutes of Amnesty Day. So if you went to a party and got hammered last weekend, you can tell me that, and you're not going to get in trouble. I just want to know what's going on with you. I just want to know what you're up to because I care about you and I want to be able to help you. 
Okay, amnesty day. You can tell me anything and you're not going to get in trouble. Then, there are some questions we can ask, like... My slides are goofy. Have you ever been exposed to pornography? Or better yet, when were you first exposed to pornography? You can blame me. We went to this talk. Father Kokali says, this is a huge thing with kids today. Is this really true? Have you ever been exposed? Have your friends? Do people talk about it? And then ask them when. Why do we ask when? Because I've talked to parents who caught their 16-year-old and then they ripped into their 16-year-old because their 16-year-old looked at pornography, but probably he's been looking at it since he was 11. And you, it would be best to talk to that 16-year-old as if he was 11. Because somewhere we dropped the ball back when he was 11. And people who have addictions... Pretty generally speaking, people say that they get stuck at the maturity age where they started the addiction anyways. So if your 16-year-old acts like he's 12, that's probably, it could be why. Right? How did that make you feel? Why do we ask how did that make you feel? Because they have a lot of emotions and they feel a lot of shame and they just need to get it out. Right? They just need to get it out. Made me feel gross. Made me feel curious. Probably the most important thing you can say after this is, I'm sorry that happened to you. Okay? I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm sorry that you were exposed to that. I'm sorry that kid showed you that on the bus. I'm sorry that we haven't locked down our computers at home. So we're going to try to do better from now on. Right? We're going to try to do better from now on. Doing better from now on means I'm going to put this software on your phone that'll send me an email every single that tells me what you do during the week because I want to watch out for you. Okay, when I was growing up, we had a party line and the neighbor could listen in on our phone conversation. So this is just like turning the internet into a party line. Right? Um, in the second half, we'll talk about specific filtering softwares and things that you can do to, um, to monitor phones and things like that. And, um, you know, just that little script has changed some people's lives. I have a friend, and he came and heard me give a talk like this. And, uh, and so he goes home, and he grabs his 13-year-old, and he says, follows the script. Okay, you're not going to get in trouble. Amnesty. So, you know, I saw, heard this talk on pornography. is really bad from Father Kokali. And uh, so have you ever seen that? No. Well, you know, like, Father says that most people get exposed between 8 and 11, and you're already 13, and so, you know, it would be normal if you'd already been exposed to it by now. Okay, well, yeah, I've seen it. Okay, when was the first time? Two years ago. Have you gone back? Yeah, I kind of go back, like, you know, every week. I'm doing better lately. I want to do better. Okay, I'm sorry. Then then he took everybody's phones in the house and he set them aside until he put accountability filtering software and everything and they gave it back. Right? So there was no like getting in trouble. There was no you lose your phone privileges from now on. There was no I'm going to take everything out of your room and make you earn it back. I've heard that one before. 
You're going to sleep on the floor from now on. Um, None of that, just simply, okay, this is a problem. And it's a bad problem, but I'm just going to treat it like it's a normal problem that we're going to address. And we're going to address it, and then we're going to move on together. And in order to try to make things as normal as possible moving forward. Right? When I first started doing this, I just started giving talks on covenant eyes. And what happened was like a bunch of guys who were studying for the priesthood came and saw me. And that should be no surprise, right? If 18-year-olds, like on average, that's a problem in their life, there's going to be seminarians, there's going to be religious sisters, there's going to be people getting married who have had this problem in their life. And then they started coming to me because like, they knew that I just wanted to help them. Right? I just wanted to help them. That's the biggest the biggest tool that I can recommend to you today is that to approach everything like you just want to help them. Because right? we all have our own sexual story. And sometimes we have a lot of shame. And when we discover these things and they surprise us, all of our own feelings about ourselves like come out in the conversation and it can kind of be a train wreck. You know, we have to let our Lord be merciful with us so that we can be merciful with others. Okay, I'm going to cut there. I did go the entire hour and a half, but it goes better if it's all together. So we're going to take a break, and, uh, and then when we come back, um, my friends, the Davises, are going to talk about educating your kids in human sexuality, right? Because it's not simply like we're going to cut out pornography, but we have to fill the space, and we want to fill the space with the truth and beauty of God's plan. So, we'll be back in 15 minutes. Thanks. There's also books out there.